Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Natalie, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. So where in the world are you, Natalie? Are you suffering from a heat wave or a cold streak? I am lucky enough to be in Los Angeles, and it is sunny and beautiful here. Until tomorrow. <laughs> yes, when until I believe tomorrow. rain is on the cards. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure it is, and we need it. We do need it, and hopefully you won't be driving anywhere. No, 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 no. Okay, so you've been doing some interesting work. So I was thinking about how do we start this conversation for our listeners, because we've got people from all over the world, from Saudi Arabia to Brazil to China listening in. And one thing I've noticed is that we're coming off, I hope, touch wood, the peak of COVID. And during the buildup into COVID, many companies were forced into investing in digital to connect with customers. They had no choice. Some were successful, some were unsuccessful. So using that as a starting point, do you think that companies have become better in managing customer experience at scale? Good question. So I think when Mother Nature kind of drives change, sometimes you have to adapt or die. And I think we saw that with the pandemic. And I think a couple of things happened. One is that customers really became conscious of how much they needed to interact with companies in new ways. So I can remember at the beginning of the pandemic, um, being scared to go to the grocery store, being worried about shopping, being worried about people. And so I, I thought of myself as someone who bought a lot of things online. And then I found myself buying everything online. Yes. And I, like most people, patronized companies that made it easy and not everybody was really ready for that. Yes. So some have done better and some have done worse as a result of the pressure from COVID. What do you think some have done better? What are they doing differently? You mentioned ease of use. Is that the only thing? Well, so we kind of get into this. This is really like the premise of what's in the book. And it, it's one of those things that has always been in the back of my mind. And I, when we sat down to look at this and to try to come up with content, Tony mm -hmm. had asked me, um, why aren't experiences better, either customer or employees? Like to him, that was really fascinating. And I said, you know, I think the first reason is because companies really don't put themselves in the shoes and stand in the shoes of their customers or their employees and yes. see experiences from their point of view. And that's really, so there's sympathy, which might be something where you understand what's happening to someone, but you're seeing it from your own perspective. And I think empathy is different in that you're seeing it from the other person's point of view. Well, that's a good point. Thinking of my own experience, when COVID hit, for some reason, Amazon Prime was booked out for days. I couldn't order through Amazon Prime. And then I switched to Instacart, which had somehow had the foresight to bulk up their deliveries and they were able to deliver. So there's a period of about two to three weeks where I was using Instacart exclusively and I became familiar with the app and I knew the drivers were delivering and so on. But as soon as Amazon Prime opened up their windows, I switched back. 
because the app was for me more intuitive. It is much easier to use. It made a lot more sense to me. And I think what you say makes sense there because I remember also trying to buy books online and I was forced to pick between Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And then I was thinking to myself, has a Barnes and Noble executive actually used their website to order a book? Because if they did, they must surely know this is not a pleasant experience. I think that's what you're referring to. It's do they go through the same pain points as their customers? Right. And what we kind of observed was that this kind of perspective dates back to probably, oh, there's there's many points in time that provide that historical footprint. But I would say more recently in the last hundred or so years, back to the 1890s, at least in America, that was the beginning of the first industrial revolution. And if you think about the inventions, uh, especially in the United States, Ford, Boeing, JP Morgan, who controlled everybody's money, uh, Chrysler, they were all inventing amazing things and really yes. taking like manufacturing and, and a lot of these things into a level that we'd never done before. And their focus was really about efficiency at all costs. And so when you look at that historical footprint of that strategy, and you start to look at how companies are run today, much of that historical footprint is left over. But if you look at what needs to be done from the customer's point of view, and, and I'll use a phrase that um, from a professor, late uh, Harvard professor, Clayton Christensen, mm -hmm. who said, look at the job to be done. If you look at that job to be done from a company centric point of view, there's one, there's a way to do it, right? And often that's to cut costs. But if you look at it from the employee and the customer's point of view, you see a completely different yes. experience. Well, I like what you're saying. I want to unpack this for the audience because I think it's maybe one of the pivotal points here. Historically, those companies you mentioned, they were built in an era when getting efficiency and scale to lower cost was their paramount focus to take market share. And many companies still operate that way, even though they're not aware they're operating that way, because a lot of management theory was built from the successes of those companies. And just to bring it home for the audience, you're saying that even though they may not know they're doing it, because of the way they're operating, when they have to make a decision where there's a trade-off between doing what's best for the customer and getting efficiencies, they tend to focus on getting efficiencies. And the funny thing is that when you do things from the customer or the employee's point of view, it's actually economically better for the company if, if, and this is a big F, yeah. if you're not necessarily operating from let's cut costs, but you're operating from a loyalty creating, revenue creating point of view. And so if you start to look at, this struck me as interesting. If you don't have employees, then they can't create the things, either products or services that customers buy. If you don't have customers, there's nobody to buy the things that you produced. So without customers and without employees, there's no company. And yet, neither are on the PL. We do not account for their value. Wall Street, investors, markets do not account for the financial value of these two most important assets that you have in your company. But I, th I think what's happened to companies, honestly, is that um, they're, they're really starting to have to look at experiences from the customer and the employee's point of view. And if you think about it, 
if those are your two most important assets and you take care of them and you make experiences great, you're going to become the company that everybody wants to work for or everybody wants to buy from. And I think that's the companies that did have success during COVID. And I would say COVID was um, or is, because I don't know that it's over, is this kind of, I think it woke us all up. It was a yes. turning point. We were all going so fast and so furious. And then the world stopped for all intents and purposes compared to uh, the, the, the pace that we were on. And everything changed, like, you know, what you did, where you worked, whether you went somewhere, how you got your groceries, how you got your health care, um, how you thought about your, your well-being, your neighbors, your friends, your family, everything changed. And I think that that gave us a pause and that pause woke up a bit of complacency. And in particular, part of this conversation is the great resignation, which is a lot of people quit their jobs or left their jobs or going to work for somebody where their passions could be met. And so I, I think what's happening to companies is that if they aren't waking up and they aren't really taking the clues from customers and employees, they're going to find themselves in a very precarious situation. Well, that's well said. And building on that, you made a very good point at the earlier part of the conversation where you said that if a company wants to serve customers, it would imply it needs to organize itself very differently than the way it's currently organized. And I remember when I used to be a strategy partner, I would speak to banking executives when digital was taking off. And I would tell them that these are the changes you need to make. And they'd say, hey, Michael, hold on a second. What you're implying is you've got to change the way the entire bank is organized. And I'm saying, yes, that's what I'm implying but you have to do it anyway, because someone's going to do it if you don't do it. So knowing the scale of what's required, how do companies incrementally get there? Is there a best path forward? Because it requires them to think quite differently and organize themselves quite differently. Well, I think you're a, uh, my twin brother of a different mother, because <laughs> that's exactly what, when I talk to executives, that's exactly what I say to them. Like, if you're really going to do this, if you really want to change your business, then you really have to change everything. And that scope of change is, is really difficult to pull off well. And I think it starts with strategy and it starts with leadership. And so what I found in talking to many executives as we were working on this that most of them don't even realize that they have a blind spot in the way that they think about their strategy or their people or their technology or their, how they calculate finances. Yes. And so what you don't know that you don't know is probably your biggest enemy. So one is what don't you know that you don't know? And what's number two? Number two is going, aha, wow, there's a lot we don't know that we don't know. And then being open to start to look at that. And I think one of the reasons I think Amazon has been successful is that in the very, very beginning of its inception, one of the things that it did, and not a lot of people know this, is that they would, they created a group of customer advocates and brand ambassadors, if mm -hmm. you will. And they asked them, what was the experience like? And this goes long, long time ago when Amazon wasn't this beautiful interface and recommendation yes. engines and, and all the things that it was, but they would ask this group and ask them for feedback and then they would make changes and then they would 
ask for more feedback. And it was this continuous loop, which we refer to as the ODA loop, which is observe, orient, act, and then decide. And I think part of what happens in companies is that they get an idea, right? So there's this big vision or big yes. mission, massive transport of purpose. We're going to be this, right? And then they don't really ask employees or customers for feedback. So they go yes. down a path that probably isn't the right path. And then even if they did do that, do they continuously ask for feedback and continuously create a feedback loop so they can do what Amazon did, which was incrementally over time become that customer employee centric focused organization. And that requires, um, I would say, and, and I don't really like the word or the words anymore. I, I wish we could find, maybe you and I can come up with something, um, organizational change, because I think a lot of people think of it as the kind of creating the kumbaya moment, yes. right? Where everybody's happy, happy. And it's, it's really more for me about taking, having a way to measure the current state, being able to look at the gaps and then determine from those gaps, what's our next best action. You said many interesting things and I wanna make sure I unpack this for the audience. The one thing that many people forget when they look at companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and so on, is that they became who they are over time. It was a process of putting in brick by brick, seeing if the brick worked, pulling it out, putting in another brick, and slowly building up. And then one day we woke up and realized Amazon took over retail. But a lot of, a lot of companies are trying to do today is they're trying to become Amazon over the two-year transformation as opposed to seeing the two years as laying that solid foundation in which they'll build over time. And I think a lot of CEOs set unnecessary expectations with shareholders when they say, we're gonna become a digital killer in three years, when really it's gonna take them a lot longer than that. Do you think, see that misunderstanding in the market? Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. The time constant to, to per change really does, you know, nobody wants to hear it's gonna be a five year or 10 year transformation project. But in reality, it does take time. And what we saw with the pandemic and COVID was a forcing function that yes. made people have to make new decisions. So for instance, part of what we did, because we weren't sure how this was going to affect our business, is we actually looked at some of our customers and often they have between 20 and 2000 people sitting in a room answering phones or emails or chats. And during the pandemic, obviously you couldn't have that many people in a room. So what we did was we offered our software in the cloud for free for two months. And we gave companies the opportunity to restructure themselves using cloud technology. Mm -hmm. So for instance, the agents could be at home and answering phone calls or emails or in countries where they didn't have strong internet infrastructure companies would rent hotel rooms and employees could work there. And what we found was by putting ourselves in the shoes of companies who needed to solve an immediate problem to keep their employees safe, but keep their business going, we were able to provide a solution that was very timely. And I, I really looked you know, to Tony for sitting in the shoes of our customer and thinking, what is it that we really need to do right now? Rather than being so 
introspective and not really seeing the world through other people's eyes, really looking at, you know, what's keeping my customer up at night? You know, what are they frustrated with? What's going to really derail them in this moment? And then how can we be of service? And so it's really that servitude leadership that's key. Yeah, it's the mindset of how to serve as opposed to this is what I have, how do I sell it, right? Right. Yeah, it's kind of like um, we built it, you know, if we build it, they will come attitude and here's our stuff. Isn't it great? And, and I think that that all of these things that we're talking about are such old mindsets. And yet we don't even realize that we're sitting in the shoes of old time strategies and without really thinking about how do I run my business? How do I, what is that experience for my customers? Are my products and my offerings what my customer needs now, without asking yourself those questions as a leader, I don't think that you're going to see what some of the companies who did put this mindset, take this on really the success that they saw. It, it can't be a gimmick. It can't be a tactic. It actually has to come what I would say from the heart of really putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and really determining how best can I serve them right now? Many interesting insights. So I'm gonna circle back to something you said a few minutes ago, because I think this is maybe the big issue here. You said the first step is how do you know what you don't know? And I was speaking to Gary Hamill, I was speaking to Ram Charan over the last few months, and they always come back to the same point whereby leadership is about taking a bet on the future. There's no, analysis in the world that's going to tell you with certainty what's going to happen. So you have to take a bet on the future, knowing what information you know, and taking an assessment on whether you can push your company in that direction, whether you can hire the right lieutenants, because you don't know when you're making that bet. But what's been your experience or whatever you've seen works best in getting leaders to know what they don't know, or at least be open to the fact that they are things they don't know? I would say probably the, the most important thing is to get feedback from many layers in the organization. So what I've seen in my career is oftentimes the CEO or the, the senior leadership team um, is very insulated. So there's a yeah. layer, there's a couple layers underneath that. And then there's the people who really do the work. And, then, and for whatever reason, and I'm not, I'm not talking about any company in specific, but there's um, a need to please and manage up to that layer at the CEO level. And I think oftentimes they don't realize a really strong, solid CEO actually wants to know the truth. And I think that's part of why I get um, a, a lot of people want to work with me because I, I want them to know the truth because yes. I don't want them to be blindsided. I want, you know, even though in the moment, it may be difficult feedback, or it may be difficult thing to hear about the organization. I want to be honest, because without being honest, I really don't think I'm doing my job, which comes to another point of psychological safety. So how safe do employees feel about saying the truth? Or is it a culture of groupthink and not invented here and command and control? which all leads to a lack of psychological safety, which creates this, you know, I'm just going to say what I need to say to the person that I'm managing up to. But you can kind of see that um, cascade of if everybody in the company does that, 
by the time the message is kind of like playing telephone, by the time the message gets to the CEO, it's a completely different message, different reality than what's happening inside of the company. It's interesting you say that because it got me thinking about a study we did many years ago for a banking CEO. And they wanted to know, when do bad things happen? There was a question they gave us because they, they raised the question of the challenger disaster and a couple of other environmental disasters. And they say, what's the common element here? And the common element in all of these things is someone knew something bad was going to happen. But for whatever reason, they either didn't feel they had the authority or the safety to speak up because they'd be reprimanded. So in almost all those situations, whether it was a banking disaster, whether it was a fraud at a bank, whether it was a challenger disaster, whether it was a dam bursting somewhere that was owned by some mining company, someone knew about it, someone had the data, someone tried to get it pushed up, but the culture of the organization pushed them down. And it's exactly what you said, insularity is the culture of the organization that just pushes people away from talking about the truth because they feel that the messenger is gonna be shot. And oftentimes the messenger is shot. I've, I've been in organizations where that was the case. And then you, you start to think about your perspective becomes what's best for me in the moment versus what's, what's best for the organization. And I think, I think a lot of um, organizations don't know how to process information that's something that they don't really want to hear or don't want to know. And so part of that is creating that kind of culture where there's an openness and an odd, the, I guess, the desire and the opportunity to be authentic and genuine and to tell the truth and that that's re openly rewarded. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we do when we have all hands and Tony speaks is, you know, people yes. can type in chat and they can say things and it's not all positive, right? Because if it was all positive, there's no way that it would be real. I mean, there's no company that's perfect. There's no company that has everything figured out. And even in working on this book, you know, some people said, well, is this like the, the decoder ring to success? Yes. And I said, the purpose is to start a conversation. Nobody has all the answers, but if we don't start the conversation and we don't start to ask ourselves questions and we don't start to see things through other people's eyes, we're never we're never going to know what we don't know that we don't know. And the example you gave with this uh, sort of town hall virtual meetings with Tony, the CEO of your company, I believe, mm -hmm. it comes down to the psychology of the leader willing to not take the criticism personally. Right, because what I, what I see and what I was taught, um, especially as a management consultant, was that if you, if you see something, right, and you're in a, a a culture where you're psychologically safe, because I don't want to encourage people to just start telling the truth and they get fired and they say, well, yes. that said, right? So you do have to check and, and determine whether you're psychologically safe, at least with the managers that, that you work with. But when you start to give that feedback, one of the things that I was taught was don't bring a boss or the CEO a problem without three answers or three solutions or three ideas, mm -hmm. and then make sure that you've thought through them and you have your best pick and why, because oftentimes executives need to make a decision very quickly. They are not, they'll, there's no way that you can have all the data. Nobody yes. has all the data to, especially in this time where things are changing exponentially, but you want to help them 
I, I see it as like, I'm not saying something negative. I'm seeing the gap and then the possibility. Yeah, so we spoke about the psychology of leadership in responding to these changes. What are some examples of companies that are doing a good job and deserve to be talked about? Well, I would say companies that you see, you know, um, I mean, there's always controversy about any company, but yes. the companies that um, there's good and bad, right? And, and you may or may not like leadership from and by the time see. this podcast is released, some of these examples may be old as well, because it's just right. how and, fast and the world moves. <laughs> it's, there may be some 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 impending danger that they're facing because, you know, it, it's, it's not easy, right? But you look at Apple, you look at Tesla, you look at Nike, you look at Starbucks, you you look at these companies, and for the most part, the things that they do, they've really put themselves in the shoes of their customer, and they've really looked at you know, how, how am I going to deliver what it is I want to deliver, but from their perspective. And I think because they've been able to do that, because they've been able to really take that into consideration and create a brand where customers really feel an affinity, um, I think it really, really truly makes a difference. So the Tesla example is a good example because I was recently looking to buy a car and I went onto the website of a rival company. And then I was configuring my car, you know, picking the color of the brakes. You can actually do those things. Now. You can pick your own brake caliper color from oh. yellow to red. <laughs> Took me a long time. You know, I'm doing research. I don't know the meanings of some of these words. I spent maybe 45 minutes playing around with this thing. And I thought I had the perfect car. And I said, order. And do you know what the company did? It said, thank you for your information. Please contact the dealership. And I'm thinking to myself, I just spent 45 minutes picking the perfect car. And now you want me to go into a dealership and repeat the whole exercise of the pushy salesperson. So when you talk about why some of these companies have raving fans, it's about almost, here's an example where this rival car company copied something that worked with Tesla, where you can configure it online and you can place the order online with Tesla at that moment and place a deposit but they simply added on something that Tesla did without figuring out how it added value to their customer experience. And they probably didn't look at the process, right? So yes. yeah, it's, it's like, oh, well, that looks like a good idea. So let's just copy it. And I think that, again, if you, whether you're looking at competitors or companies that are in adjacent markets, you can see somebody else have success and you can start to say, well, that's really cool. We're going to do that. But is that going to work in your particular culture, the way that you have your website set up, yes. the way that you have your technology set up, your processes? I mean, I just recently bought a car through Carvana and I had, I've always gone through dealerships and I yeah. really didn't like that experience. So I thought, well, let me try Carvana. And I can tell you that it was the most, um, probably the best experience that I've ever had buying a car in terms of finding the cars. Um, you go on the website, you search for the car that you want and you like it, you heart it. It's kind of like dating and then you have them in your <laughs> collection. Left. Yeah. Slide left, slide right. And you, you put them in your collection. And then I started to look at mileage and years and features. And then I found one car that I really liked and I decided, okay, that's the one I'm going to go for. And from that point on, the process with Carvana was fabulous. Questions that I needed answering, process, what I had to do next. It was completely figured out from top to bottom. 
And I think that if you want to be that kind of company that offers you this experience, it's very clear to me that they had sat in the shoes of customers, many customers who don't want to buy from dealerships for the variety of reasons that it, it does feel, uh, it doesn't necessarily feel good in it. The financial part doesn't feel transparent and it feels confusing. Um, and what I was really surprised about is the quality of the car that I got. So there's a piece of me that was a little bit scared because, you know, I'm, I found a car, the car mm. originated in uh, Virginia, then it got transferred to Sedona and then it came to Los Angeles. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to commit to this car, but I've never seen it. Yes. So what Carvana does is they take the car is I bought a 2012 um, they take the car, they clean it up, they make sure the upholstery, the outside, everything. Like, so there was a guy in my garage and he said, did you get a promotion? And I go, James, why would you say that? And he goes, that car. Wow. And I go, James, that's a 2012. And he's like, what, what? And I'm like, I know it looks really like it's a brand new car. So I think what Carvana did was sit in my shoes and say, when she sees this car, yes. we want her to be so thrilled and so excited that there's no way that she's going to return it. And I had friends come and drive because you get a seven day test drive period. I had friends drive with me. I took it to the Lexus dealership. They checked it out. Everybody said, this is an amazing car. Where'd you get this? And I said, Carvana. And now I started to look back at their process and they have a 150 point inspection uh, criteria. I realized they are really sitting in the shoes of, of me yes. and figuring out what's going to make me say yes and, and have me talk about the experience, right? So there's the having the experience, but then being so excited about the experience that you share it with other people. And what's great about this is Kavana didn't pay for this ad. No, they did not. They, they did. There's, there's no fan. Yeah. They don't even know I'm saying this. This is the thing which you're basically talking about in your newest book, right? Empathy in Action, which is that if you put yourself in the shoes of the customer and you build a product or a service that truly serves their real need, how can they not love you? That's pretty much what happened is the car I hearted, I fell in love with. And I, I'm just, I feel fortunate. I feel excited. Um, I feel like, you know, people, people ask me where I got the car. I'm proud to say where I bought it from and to recommend this company. And part of what I think companies need to realize is if I say you should go have this experience, you should buy from that company. There's a part of personal reflection on my part, because yes. if I'm not confident that you're going to have a great experience, I'm not going to recommend you. Right. So there's the NPS score, which says, yes. would you recommend us? where the reality meets the road is, did you recommend us? Yes. And if I didn't think, if I thought there was a chance that somebody wouldn't have an amazing experience, I, I wouldn't say, yeah, you should definitely do this. This is a very interesting because when you talk about, most of this is digital. We're playing in the digital world. You have to have digital processes that work, but not just work, they work at serving the customer and putting the customer needs first. And, and at scale. And at scale, yes, that's the main thing. It's easy to do this in one branch, but can you make this operate seamlessly while still customizing it for the differences in different regions? A lot of this comes down to really understanding processes and redesigning them. And when I talk to a lot of executives, 
in financial services, even mining and so on. And I talked to them, you know, who's managing it? Who has oversight over your processes? Who's sitting there and deciding which processes should be automated, how they should be changed? What's almost happened is that as we've moved more and more into digital, basic things like understanding processes have fallen away. Companies don't take them as seriously anymore. They know they're important, but because it's the term from 1990, they think, well, this is a 1990 term, Michael. Why are you talking about business process reengineering? We did it 25 years ago. But we did, yes. but did we do it from the company's point of view or the customer's point of view? Exactly. Because BPO in 1995 was about cost reduction. It was all it was about. It was about did you get efficiencies? Did you get economies of scale? Did you pull out all this redundant costs? Did you cut down your management layers? It was never about, as you said very well, you've said it's never about how do I reorganize my company to put my customer first? That's so BPO right. did a very good job at its initial goal, but it needs to be you know dusted off and brought back to serve a new goal. And, and I think... I, th I think that's really well said. I think that if you look at your process and you are focused on cutting costs, then you're going to look for ways to cut costs. But if you're looking for that person to be a brand advocate and a fan, a fanatical fan, yes, what you're going to provide and the things that you're going to look at when you're looking at your process and the decisions you make to fix those gaps are going to be completely different. Yeah, it's the same technique, but rollout, the outcomes, the metrics, the goals will be dramatically different. In fact, you're going to get a new company. Pretty much. And, and that's kind of the conclusion that we came to was, and that's why we called the book Empathy in Action, because if, if and this is a, it's so simple, it's kind of like E equals MC squared, although not that important, right, yeah. to the world as, as that particular thing was. But in a way, maybe, maybe it is that important. And that's part of why we started what we want to term the customer and employee respect movement is if everything was done from the people that you are serving from that point of view, it does like, it's kind of like an Excel spreadsheet. You change yes. one cell and click, 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 everything else changes. And that's kind of the, the essence that I want people to get from the things that I'm talking about is that that one fundamental change changes everything because it's all connected it's all connected so in your experience what do executives need to keep in mind as they scale what works in a pilot so first the pilot has to be authentic and real because if you scale a business-centric process or pilot yes. you're just going to get more of the same and then i think that's another piece that i really like if you're really going to make change or you're going to execute change, you really have to do this differently. So you can't come in with the same mindset and you really have to have a team that is put these new glasses on and can see the world from this different point of view. And what I find is most of us who work in corporations have been schooled and have business centric glasses on. Yes. And, and we don't even know that we have them on because it's so enculturated. I mean, if we really believe that it goes back to the first industrial revolution. It's that's been a long time that we've been thinking this way. And so I see the fifth industrial revolution, which we just started as this opportunity to put these new glasses on. So if you could get one person to see what we're talking about and you could get two people and then five people and then 20 yes. people on a team 
And then they could pick a particular aspect of the business and rework that or, or change that from that point of view. Now you want to take that and you want to scale it. So part of it is communication plan. Why is this important? What are we doing? How are we doing it? How is it going to change? What's in it for me? Part of it is education. So helping people, and, and I'm working right now on the sales training for internal for our own company and helping people really see how does this change how we go to market, how we do business, how we sell, how we service. And at first, it just sounds like corporate rhetoric until you start to get that fundamental, visceral feeling of, oh, when I change my focus, when I change the paradigm, when I change what I'm really determining is going to be my future path, then you start to see, oh, well, that would change process and that would change technology and that would change HR policy and that would change training and that would change communication. And, yes. and then you start to see, right? And so I think part of scaling this is really getting that pocket or pilot of success in every single functional department. And the future probably lies in organizations that I would say are very similar to what I experienced in high school, where you have a homeroom. So you belong to that homeroom. So let's say marketing is your homeroom or sales is your homeroom. And then you go to other classes and you interface with other people. And then the next day you come back to your homeroom. So you start to think about, well, if the customer needs help, is it really customer service that can answer every single question yes. or might they want to talk to product or might they want to talk to marketing or sales or e-commerce or order fulfillment or order management? And if you could start to really reorganize your company and maybe you can't do this physically, but you could do it with technology and you could route that customer to the right person and they got the right answer. It's, it's a way of starting to look at our organizational structures and the structure of work and the structure of jobs and, and what is the purpose of that person's work that they do every single day and how customer centric is that focus. So I think part of it is having that initial pilot that is really truly different, having that have positive outcomes, and then thinking about how do I instigate that seed of newness in every single department? And then how do I, you know, gather, I would, I would say your change advocates, people who are really excited about this and you're going to encounter change saboteurs because that yes. always happens. And it's, it's part of how you manage change, but then starting to really look at what else do I need? And maybe it's change in processes, maybe it's change in technology, but it's, it's a large scale project. You know, what you said makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to focus on the path at the end because we tend to treat customer service as a cost center in most companies where they operate. It's the part that deals with customers. It, it shocks me how many companies, even those that are said to be good at scaling their approach to customers, where they don't invest in customer service and they treat it as if it's some unit whereby you need to cut costs as much as possible and forget about them. There was a situation where we worked with a steelmaking company and we got them to dissolve their customer service department. And what we ask them to do is that if customers have a complaint, why don't you connect them with someone in your technical and engineering crews to speak to? And the interesting thing about that is for the first year, it was a big drain on the business. But after the first year was over, what they realized was when their engineers went to visit customers on site, 
they found new ways to sell products. They could see firsthand a problem a customer is having and they said, look, hold on a second, we can fix that for you. Give us six months and we can have a new product out. After about a year and a half, sales went through the roof because the customers were working closely with engineering and R&D and so on. So the point I'm trying to make is that you are right when you say you've got to rethink customer service, but that means dramatically rethinking customer service today. And rethinking customer service means rethinking your whole organization. I mean, I've always found it fascinating that the one department that talks to your customer base on a regular basis is paid between 15 and $30 an hour. I know it's shocking. And they, they hate their job. And part of the reason they hate their job is because there's so much cognitive burden. They are responsible for answering every single possible question about how a company operates. And it really makes no sense. And I know that we've created knowledge bases and there's AI that can start to look for the right content for this person to read and then tell that person. But it, it doesn't, it never really made sense to me that one department could answer the questions of all departments. And it never made sense to me that all the other departments never talk to the customer. Yes. So what you found in your example was when engineering or product development went to go talk to the customer, they saw it, they got insights, they got information, they created new products. I have an interesting story. So there was a, a diaper bag company that I was working with. Yes. And there was um, they really cool diaper bags. If, if you have babies and you have lots yeah. of stuff you need to cart around and you need lots of pockets and so they had a really amazing uh, design and everybody really liked it. it was very popular and one of the comments in their online forum was from a guy who said really love the diaper bag but when I take my child to the game with me I really want to take a the style of the bag as something that feels more like my style rather than flowers or so The company got that feedback. They redesigned the exterior, keeping the cool interior, right? It was so functionally um, well-designed, changed the outside. And overnight, they had a brand new marketplace. And they started to look at who are our various customers, the grandma, the mom, the dad, the uncle, the aunt, and what would they be really proud of and what would they want to carry with them? And they completely expanded their product line overnight. But that's a great example there because it doesn't come out from deep analysis. It's just paying attention to your customers. And I think that's one of the things that, that when I started to really look at digital media and I wrote some of the first ROI models, because people, I remember when Twitter and, and some of the first social networks came out, people yes. were like, well, that's just people saying they're walking their cat or something. You know, they ate a sandwich. But when you start to look at the content that's created in online forums, communities, reviews, and in social media, there is no better research market research than listening to your customer. I mean, you can take 10 people, feed them a sandwich, ask them questions and try to get market research. But if you actually list are listening to your customers and social is and digital is one of those great ways to do that. You listen, you take that information, you take that feedback, you take it back into your organization and you really start to create change and you give it to engineering and order fulfillment and customer service and marketing, 
then you're that's part of and and we go back to where we started our conversation which was how did amazon become so successful and they became successful because they asked the customer for feedback and they in an iterative process continually integrated that feedback and they've been doing this for years now so imagine one year of feedback two years of feedback yes. imagine 10 15 20 years of feedback listening from the other person's point of view or an empathetic approach is the key to success. And I would say it's the key to success in every relationship, whether you're in business or whether you're in a, in a personal relationship or a friendship, seeing things from somebody else's point of view changes everything. You used a very good word where you call it a relationship. And oftentimes companies don't see it as a relationship they see an interaction with customers as a data gathering exercise, which they'll then bring back to the office and say, okay, this is what customers are telling us. Based on our customers are telling us, how do we market the same product without changing it? So we get the customer to buy, as opposed to saying, this is what the customer really wants. How do we change what we're offering them to give them what they want? Because marketing should be about solving problems, but it's become a selling tool. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that when you think about as a buyer, when you see something marketed, there's a question in the back of your mind, right? So I was looking at cat food and thinking that the cat food that I feed my cats probably isn't very healthy. Yeah. And so when I started to look at this new company, the things that I'm worried about, about um, my cats getting older, their digestion, is, yes. it, is it really helping them stay healthy? their marketing was really aimed at answering those questions. And not, not only did their taglines kind of spark that we heard you and, and we get where you're, what you need, but they explained how their product would answer the things that keep me up at night, that make me worried, that make me feel like maybe I'm not being a, a good mom to my cats. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. When you start to look at marketing to solve problems and, and you look at what is the problem, how are we going to solve it? And then you take that and turn that into your campaign. Who wouldn't say yes? That's the point of marketing is that people would respond, right? Because that, that's the first step is that awareness and, and the responsiveness. And then you need to follow that up in your sales process. But just listening to you, right? For the audience, if we apply a different lens, we've just given a classic example of this, whereby you are the customer of someone who has cats. And I'm listening to you to, about a very specific concern you have that your cats are older. Now, in my entire life, because I'm not a pet person, I don't, I've never served a pet company, I never thought about the age of a pet as being a dimension on which I can compete. There must be many pet owners out there who have older cats who are concerned about the specific needs of older cats. What if I put out a product or a service that catered to pet owners who had older cats and were worried about their specific nutritional requirements, bone density, bone strength. And I don't know much about pets, I mean, clearly. But just a perfect example, if I was actually listening on, on this conversation, I was a CEO of a pet company, I'd say, hold on a second here. Yeah? How many other clients or customers have older pets? Is there a market here we need to serve? And how do we serve it? And that's a beautiful example of, we're not even trying to create an example, but just listening to a customer, there's so many insights you can pull out from that. And that's just one conversation. And it's fascinating. It, and what we did 
with the word empathy is we created empathy pillars. So for instance, if you and I were having a conversation, the first thing I do is listen. I take in all that information. I'd begin to understand you. And I'd start to think about how can I add to this conversation? Yes. And then I'd add my piece to the conversation. And as I got to know you and interact with you, I'd start to learn more about you and what would make a lasting friendship. And I think that that's really the key is, is those four empathy pillars, listen, understand and predict, act and learn. They're very, very simple concepts, but when you take them, whether you're in a personal relationship, a professional relationship, listening to your customers, listening to your employees, if you take those four steps as kind of your framework and you start to think about how am I doing that from the other person's point of view, then you start to really start to see things that maybe you didn't know that you didn't know or gaps in either your technology or process or your strategy. Yeah, that's right. It's very simple things. They're all simple things we know. We've been taught this in different places, but it's about pulling it together when it counts, when you're making those important business decisions and not to be caught into the inertia. Because one of the things we forget is that the investment community, the investors, the board may not be as far-sighted as the CEO. Someone has to take the reins and say, we're going in the wrong direction. We have to change tech, and this is why we have to do it. This is what's going to cost us. This is the process. We've got to bear with some losses over this time, but that's part of the plan. And I find many CEOs and generally you know, leaders, they're not willing to make that bet because if it goes wrong, they get blamed for it. It does take a lot of guts. It does take um, the ability to use your intuition. I think when I've talked to most CEOs, uh, most of them will say that a good part of their vision comes from intuition and gut. I think there's only so much data that you can really gather to make those decisions. But the CEOs that I've worked with that have been most successful are ones that are focused on not what the company is doing today and not what, what the company needs to do now, but they're looking at that customer tomorrow, the next day, six months from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, and really looking at what they're doing from that customer's point of view. And I actually think predicting, it seems like predicting the future, which would be a really hard thing to do because crystal balls don't really exist. Yeah. But the insights that you get from really looking at and the information that you get from asking questions and talking to customers, just like, you know, it kind of sounds like in the mining example, right? The the, the metal company's example, it almost sounds like they needed a crystal ball mm -hmm. and they could sit in their room, like a, a big conference room and they could brainstorm. And I've seen this, I've participated in a lot of these and been frustrated where they sit in a conference room and they talk to each other about what they think the customer needs. Yes. And then they act as though they had this crystal ball and that they have got it. And then they march down the road and, you know, they present this to the CEO or the CEO maybe was part of it, but they, what they don't realize is there is a crystal ball and the crystal ball consists of a very simple thing, asking your customer what they want and what they need, and then listening to their feedback to hear things that they don't even know that they want to need, but that you can see as a leader would help them because they've talked about things that, that keep them up at night or they're frustrated with, or 
or part of their goals or things that they want to do. Because I think that the purpose of a leadership and the purpose of a company is not really to focus on products for today. I think it's really anticipating the needs, the future yes, needs. That's right. And when you anticipate the future needs, that's when you create your own future. Yeah, I like the example you provided of saying that um, they do have a crystal ball. You just look at how customer sentiment is changing and you'll get a pretty good viewpoint of that. And it's almost as if MBA programs, I'm just using MBA programs as an example, they produce leaders where the leader thinks their job is to manage the assets of the business, as opposed to saying, how do I truly understand my customer and reorient the assets to serve that customer? Because one of the things I always do when I meet CEOs or chief operating officers is I ask indirectly, how much time do you spend interacting with your customers or observing your customers? I mean, if you're the CEO or the chief financial officer of a toy company that makes toys for five-year-olds, how much hours in a day do you spend watching a five-year-old play with toys? Or you're relying on other people to get that information and feed it back to you. But there's nothing like first-person information. And you'll be surprised how many executives will tell you they don't spend time with customers. I think they're so busy doing whatever it is that they think they should be doing which is maybe managing the board's expectations or managing the finances or um, being on the boards of other companies. I think that they, that, and we go back, you know, to this focus on efficiency at all costs. When you start to really look at that first industrial revolution, that, that group of executives and CEOs yes. that yes. were focused on that singular goal of creating mass production at the lowest possible cost. And I still see, even though, you know, we're not creating exactly the same things, I still see a lot of that thinking and that strategy. And I really feel like if CEOs could start to take on this new, this new concept of putting themselves in the shoes of their customer and actually going and talking to that customer and seeing them interact with their products that, I mean, it really reminds me of that, um, of that TV show, Undercover Boss. Oh, I love that show. And every time what I, what I found most heartfelt about that show was, you know, is humbling for the CEO to go and work on the assembly line or, or work in an office or, you know, do, do the, jobs that we all do on a, on a regular basis. And then the interactions when the CEO has the revelation that this person's job is really hard and it's not that they're bad employees, that it's a really difficult situation that we're putting them in and their experience is not very positive. And until that CEO does that job and sits in the shoes of that particular employee, they don't know what they don't know. They can't see what they can't see. And there's no amount of business intelligence reports that's going to give them that visceral feeling and that knowledge of that experience until they actually do it. And there was, a, you know, management by walking around, yes. which I, I think is a good um, leadership technique, but it's a technique. It's not really going through and really truly understanding the hundreds of thousands of things that people do on every single day and understanding 
are we really meeting that employee's needs to be for them to be able to serve our customers really well? And I'm, I don't think that any one CEO could go and sit in, you know, we have over 6,000 employees. So there's no way that Tony could sit in our, every single one of our jobs and see it. But what if this was a management process? And what if all the managers, all the leaders started to look at the jobs of their employees through the employee's point of view? And that information started to get filtered up. You start to see how, because you had asked me earlier about how do you manage this change? And part of that is managing the work that gets done. And the work that gets done is what really creates the culture. And so if you had leadership that thought from the top up and from the bottom, the top down and the bottom up about these processes and about really looking at the employee experience and then saying, I mean, I've been in a lot of companies where I look at the employee experience and I'm like, no wonder employees don't like their job. No wonder your attrition is high and no wonder the customer doesn't really enjoy buying from you. And in some cases, you know, there's uh, trapped loyalty, like an electric company or a gas company where there isn't a lot of alternatives. Um, But in, in a lot of cases, I think that, you know, this is part of a cultural transformation and part of, I think HR has for a long time been employee relations or the people police. And instead of managing that, which there is a need to do that, obviously, but part of what could be managed is this way of thinking of helping managers understand, looking at the job and the structure of the job and the content of the job and what people are doing on an everyday basis and, and asking somebody, are we making this easy for you? Enjoyable? Is it difficult to do your job? Why or why not? What would be better if, and taking that feedback and starting to create this mass database of the things that you could start to really look at and start to change. And I'm guessing that while you may see some differences in different functional departments, you'd probably start to see patterns and those patterns are are really going to help you determine next steps. It's fantastic. Fantastic. So before we wrap up, is there any pointers you want to leave for the audience? Any top tips in implementing some of this thinking? Well, I would say, first of all, determine if you're really business centric or customer and employee centric. And I, and part of how you do that is to look at your process, your technology, your culture, your strategy from the employee or the customer's point of view and really hearing their feedback and taking that feedback and determining gaps and then figuring out how do you change and fill those gaps? And then, then this is a really hard step, Yes, actually making the changes. But it doesn't end there because in the world that we live in that moves so incredibly fast today, you continuously have to ask for feedback and you continuously, it's not, I think a lot of times people and companies think that it's a transformation project, but it's yes. really a transformation it's the state of always being curious and always asking these questions. And so it just becomes part of the culture where you're continuously doing this as a continuous process that circles back on itself. And I, w- I would say if, if people can start to really think about that process of listening, understanding and predicting, acting and learning, and then repeat forever, you're going to have a really successful company. I like the part about uh, transformation 
journey or mindset as opposed to a transformation project. Because if you think about a transformation project, it's like saying that, well, I needed to be curious five years ago. And then I took everything from that curiosity and fixed my company. And now I don't need to be curious for at least the next 10 years. And that's what you're basically saying when you do a transformation project. Right. Well, you think you're done. Like, And I think the projects, and I was part of the management consulting world, right? And so yeah. we manage them as a project, two, three, five-year projects. And I think part of what made them go slow was the technology, the on-prem technology that was so difficult to code yes. and to change. And now we're in the cloud and you can make changes instantly. And that agility, that flexibility makes it much easier to make these changes in process and make these changes in, in experience and in service. And so I, I think, you know, there's a lot of companies that are resisting moving to the cloud. And, and I would say that the advantages that you get um, are so massive in terms of competitive capabilities. Yes. It's really something that, that has to be looked at and has to be solved. And the issues about security that used to be there, most companies can't, haven't updated their, their malware or their security capabilities to the extent that you, you, can, you can get from somebody else who delivers things to you in the cloud. So I really think that, you know, it's, it's, um, if you think it's a project, then going to stop you from thinking in this continuously curious mindset. Yes. And every time you take a break after a project, the competitors are not taking a break. No, there's someone in their garage who's yes. looking at what you're doing and going, you know what, those guys don't get it. I'm listening to the customer. And what's interesting is because technology has changed so much, it used to take so a massive amount yes. of capital to buy technology or to buy the things that you need to do, buildings. I mean, look at Airbnb. They have a large base of reservations and yet they own no buildings. Like that's like crazy, right? Look at Uber and Lyft. They provide transportation without owning the car, right? And that that's such a different business model than the business model that, that we've had in the past. And so when you start to really look at these changes and changes in configuration of the organization, assets and ownership, it really does change the agility of a business. And the irony of all of this is that for each of those companies you mentioned, Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb, I'm pretty sure that at some point, the competitors to Airbnb, the traditional hotel group, someone in that hotel group came up with the idea for Airbnb. It's almost guaranteed. Yep. And, and I think... So in the book, we talk about the Kodak example. And I think that's a really interesting example where um, there was a guy, Stephen, yes. who created the first digital camera. Yes, I remember that. And 1975, I believe. And he presented it to his bosses thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to think I'm amazing and that like, I'm going to get a raise or at least a thank you. And what happened was they said to him, well, why would anybody want to see a picture on a digital screen? And how soon could this cannibalize our current paper and chemical processing business? They didn't see it as the opportunity. Yes. Flash forward to 2008 when Apple released the first iPhone and it happened to have a camera in it. And you, you look at the amount of film and pictures printed up until 2009. And then after 2009, things 
almost all pictures became digital. And then if you think about Kodak, what they thought their purpose was, yes. they thought their purpose was sharing memories. Well, you put together Instagram or Facebook or some of these social networks whose whole premise is on sharing. So it's a sharing economy and you have a digital product that can be shared electronically. Now to compare that to a physical product company and you, you mistook what your, your defensible space was and you, and you missed the marketplace. And there was a guy who said out loud, here's the future. And because the leadership wasn't really listening to customers or wasn't paying attention to the things on the horizon technology or other things that were happening. They didn't see what they didn't see. Well, the thing is, if you want to fight convenience, convenience always wins. And I think that's right. the message. Yeah. I mean, that's the underlying message. If you are a leader and there's a better way to do things, you better find it because someone else is going to find it and they're going to make it work. And they're going to make it work because they're determined. And especially if you're an established company, it can be really easy to fall into what I would say, kind of a complacency mode and a, um, let's grow bigger and badder versus let's be innovative and flexible. Yes. And so, you know, you just want to get big and fat. Well, big and fat can also come with, you know, and I'm not saying you shouldn't want to be successful, but you don't want to become complacent. You still want to stay curious. And by staying curious, you just naturally want to ask questions. You want to listen, you want to learn, you want to understand, you want to predict. And, and I think, again, we go back to that crystal ball where people are like, well, how can I know this? And I don't think you're going to know at a hundred percent, but I think you're going to have so much more information and so much better insights. And if you take the ingenuity of your employees and that feedback together, that's where the magic, that's where innovation really happens. Yeah. And you have to be willing to roll out something and have the financial balance sheet to take the hit if it fails. That's innovation. Some things fail. But if you say that I'm, I'm going to do 10 years of analysis to make sure it doesn't fail, that's the wrong approach. You got to be willing. You've got to have the financial resources to roll out things and pull back quickly when they don't work. And, and if they don't work, ask why and yes. shift. So I think a lot of times I see companies go down a path and they decided, okay, this is the path and this is the path we're going to follow come hell or high water, it's either going to work or it's not going to work instead of going, okay, this is where we're going to start. And I learned this as a scientist. So when I started my thesis, we were asking one question. And when we got down the road, yes, what, what experimentation teaches you is you don't know what you don't know until you mm -hmm. try it. And when you try it, you see things you didn't see. And that information that you get in the process of, of actually doing something informs your next step. And it's kind of like that, you know, you see those posters where as you step, the next rock appears and yes. it seems like you're walking, you know, onto the ocean or the lake or the water, this infinity pool, right? And there's not, how is that rock going to come up to meet you? And what I found is the magic, this, this crystal ball process is really taking that next step and then gathering that information, having authentic and genuine conversations with customers, with employees and trusting the, the intuitive nature and how brilliant the people that work for you are and asking them, how do we take this? How do we use this? And seeing those, like the engineers that you talked about in, in the mining company, like they listened to the customers and they had all this background about what they'd done before. And they're really smart and they're really 
you know, they, they had their fundamentals down yes. and now they're taking that fundamental and they're saying, okay, here's how we can predict. And here's how we're, we're going to like try this new thing and you try it and you get feedback and you try it and you get feedback. And that again, goes back to Amazon in their very early years. If, if you look at some of the screenshots online or you look at some of the early days of Amazon, it's nowhere near. And, and they were selling books. Yes, They started selling books. Now they sell everything. So, I mean, how could they, how did they do that? They did that by stepping into it, seeing how it worked, got feedback, changed things, repeat, repeat, repeat. And again, that's the process of being curious. Learning is costly, but that learning is even more costly. Yes. Just like a blind spot. If you're just like a blind spot, if you're traveling at 60 miles an hour on a freeway and you don't see what's in your blind spot, it could be quite deadly. Natalie, thank you so much. That was a fantastic conversation. I think the audience is going to like it. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. It was wonderful to talk to you. Hope you'll have a good day and we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.